So today is the last Sunday of the year, which is one of my favorite Sundays to preach because uh, what I've done every year um, is give us something that'll kind of give us a boost into the new year or um, just kind of bring you guys into some things that I've been learning, things that I've been um, dwelling on, you know, thinking about, uh, meditating upon uh, in terms of what we're doing as a church. And one of the things that we do every week is we sing songs, we worship. And uh, so that's what I'm going to be talking about today. I'm going to be talking about uh, our worship. Um, One of the basic and fundamental truths of Christianity is that the Bible is sufficient for every area of our lives. And there's no aspect of our lives that the Bible leaves out, that the Bible doesn't touch, that the Bible doesn't adequately cover. And one of the best loved passages of scripture that we hear this time of year is Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 where we read, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of course, this is a, a prophecy of Christ, uh, of the coming of Christ, which is why we hear it so often this time of year. But I want us to zero in very briefly on one of the names that's ascribed to him here, and that is Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful counselor. We are all in the process of learning, of growing in our understanding of the fact that Christ alone is sufficient for all that we need, and that undoubtedly includes counsel, because we all need counsel, right? And it's wise to seek counsel from the word of the one who knows all things. It is a reservoir of divine knowledge, understanding, and wisdom that will never run dry. And this is what we find in his word. This is what we find. We find wisdom. We find wonderful counsel in his word. And so given that the Bible is sufficient to instruct us in every aspect of our lives, everything that we do individually or or corporately, you know, as a body of Christ, uh, everything that we do must be measured against the counsel of the Lord as revealed in Scripture. Our lives are meant, both together and individually, our lives are meant to be experienced as living sacrifices unto the Lord. And that means that we must make every effort to bring everything that we do into accordance with the will of God as revealed in Scripture. So for the past two and a half years, it's been two and a half years now, I've, I've been on something of a journey as your lead worshiper. I know people call it a, a worship leader. I like to call it a lead worshiper because I'm up here worshiping too. But I've been on something of a journey as I've been doing this. Three and a half years ago, uh, we started introducing some contemporary music with guitar and bass and drums uh, for our time of worship here at New Beginnings Church. And when it started off, we'd just play one or maybe two songs per week to start the services off. But a year later, a year after we started that, we lost our pianist. And so I took on the responsibility of leading all of our worship, not just a song or two per week. 
And so this has been something of a learning experience for me. Number one, you know, I've been playing bass, you know, since I was 16 years old. I'm 43 now, so I've been playing it for a long time. And before I started leading worship here, I could not sing and play bass for the life of me because there's so much that's going through the bassist's mind. If you look at most bands, see who the singer is, it's very rare that it's the bassist. It's very difficult. So it took a lot of work. And so that's just the beginning of what a learning experience this has been for me. But from the beginning, I also had no idea, really, looking back, I thought I did at the time, I had no idea how to pick songs, how, you know, which songs to lead us in or why we were really playing them. I say that now. At the time, I thought I knew. And of course, on the surface, you know, the surface answer is I, I could say, well, you know, we're, we're playing these songs to worship God, and, and that would be true. But that brings us to a deeper question, were we worshiping God rightly? And how could I know? And believe me when I tell you, I have asked myself these very questions more than a thousand times, I'm sure. Uh, How could I know if I was leading us in worship rightly? And the answer, the the way that I, I know whether or not I'm worshiping God rightly is by learning to measure our worship against the principles of worship that we find in the Word of God. And so about a year ago, I was, I'm just going to confess to you guys, that I was deeply smitten with conviction as we were right in the middle of a song. And I won't tell you which song it was, but we were, we were up here and we were playing a song that had something to do with God, but honestly it had very, very little to do with God. There were a lot of yous in there singing to you, you know, and uh, not one mention of Jesus, not one mention of God, uh, just a lot of yous. And man, I was, I was just smitten with, uh, with conviction. Um, I realized right there in the middle of the song that, you know, this song didn't explicitly refer to God. And I'd say that the message of the song could be summed up as how great my faith is. I was the essence of the song, as we weren't singing about how great God was or is, we were singing about how great, how faithful we are. And in that moment, I vowed that we would never, ever, ever sing that song again or a song like it as long as I am here, and, and we haven't. And so I've been reading and studying this topic. I've been reading blogs. I've, I've bought books on uh, you know, what it means to worship God in accordance with the will of God as revealed in Scripture. I've been studying it ever since. And what I found is that there's actually an entire book of the Bible that is devoted to the subject of worship, which rarely gets preached, and it's actually the longest book of the entire Bible. Anybody know what that might be? (laughs) Psalms, yeah, Psalms. Um, There's a very specific Psalm that I would like us to take a look at this morning. Uh, If you have your Bibles with you, uh, please open them to Psalm 95. Um, There are four very helpful principles that we find in Psalm 95. And if you are a note taker, uh, there are some good notes to be taken today, I think. Uh, Some good principles for worship to be found in this psalm. Uh, But in case you missed our Christmas Eve candlelight service, it went phenomenally well, speaking of worship, you know, because that's the majority of what we do for our Christmas Eve service. And as I reflected on all the 
incredible talent, musical talent, uh, that our church has been blessed with in the past year, I thought that today might be a good opportunity to look at some of the principles of worship that are laid out in Scripture. Uh, We are also blessed, by the way, with those of you who come here and love to sing and just belt it out. Uh, Believe me, I I can hear it when you guys are singing, and and I love it. That That is such a great blessing as well. So the truth is that I think we're, we're at something of a, of a turning point right now with our worship ministry, given all the new talent that's come in in the past year. Uh, it's unfolding into something that is absolutely amazing and, and beautiful, to me anyway. But that means that it's just that much more important that we develop a biblical understanding and direction for our worship are we just singing songs that are fun? Are we just, you know, like kind of having a small concert up here? Should we treat it like it's a performance? First of all, the question that we want to ask is not how do we want to worship? How do, how, do, how do we want to worship? The question that we have to ask is how does God want to be worshipped? How does God want to be worshipped? As R.C. Sproul says, he says, quote, Our modern worship needs the philosophy of the second glance, an ongoing attempt to make sure that all we do in worship gatherings is to God's glory, to his honor, and according to his will, end quote. And so that's our goal today. Our goal today is to see how it is that God desires to be worshiped. Before we answer that, maybe we should tackle a question that will give us a bit of clarity on the issue of worship, and that is whether or not there is a right way to worship? Is it, is it something that can be right or wrong, or is it amoral? Is there neither a right nor a wrong way to do it? Well, the answer is that there is absolutely a wrong way to do it. So with that principle in mind, uh, that, that there's a wrong way, um, you know, we see this principle in Leviticus chapter 10 when Nadab and Abihu go into the temple, they enter into the sanctuary to present strange or unauthorized fire to God. And immediately we read, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Is there a right way and a wrong way to worship? Ask Nadab and Abihu. I think they'd say yes. So in Deuteronomy chapter 12, we find the same principle. God is neither silent nor ambivalent about how he is to be worshipped. And so as we come into Deuteronomy chapter 12, we see the Israelites about to enter into the land of Canaan. And God says this to them. Verses 1 to 4, he says this. He says, These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. In other words, you may not copy the world when you're worshiping me. What the world does to worship their gods, you may not copy, you may not imitate, you may not bring in to your worship toward me, is what God is basically saying there. 
Note the final line. He says, you shall not worship the Lord your God that way. And that alone kind of answers that question for us, doesn't it? Is there a wrong way to worship God? Absolutely. And by the way, keep Psalm 95 open because we'll be there in just a few moments. But there is absolutely and unequivocally a wrong way to worship God. What can we learn about that from this passage here in Deuteronomy? What's the wrong way to worship God according to this passage? The warning is against worshiping God, the one true God, the same way that the world around us worships their gods, their idols. There has been a very strong movement in the past 100 years that's aimed at making our worship look and sound just like the world. If you, if you look at and listen to the American hymns that were written 75 to 100 years ago, you'll notice that they, that they, they sound a lot like early 20th century cowboy western music. Many of these songs are loved by a lot of people, but they're also marked by lyrical and doctrinal ambiguity. That's when it really started. Fast forward to 50 years ago. This is when it really took off. The hippie generation was in full swing, and one of the battle cries of their generation was, away with tradition. And there's a good and there's a bad aspect to that because there are traditions that, sure, can be done away with, but there are some traditions that are in place for a reason and should be maintained. And there wasn't a whole lot of questioning the purposes or the intents of traditions. They were just kind of uh, unequivocally viewed as bad and, and to be done away with. And it was at this point, it was about 50 years ago, that the contemporary Christian music scene really started to take off as young adults didn't relate to, didn't enjoy, didn't appreciate the traditional hymns that their parents, their grandparents, their great-grandparents, and so on and so forth had, had so cherished. In fact, if, if you were around 50 years ago, you, you may remember the song uh, written by Larry Norman, and it's a great song. Uh, why, why should the devil have all the great music or all the good music? Why should the devil have all the good music? Now, that's not really a worship song, but it's, it, as a song itself, eh, he, he makes some all right points. But the implication, wh- whether that was intentional or not, was that rock and roll was an an appropriate style for worship. And the floodgates were opened. The church at that point started truly embracing the imitation of the music styles that resonated with the culture, resonated with the world around us. Now scrolling down a little bit through the 12th chapter of Deuteronomy, we, we, came, we come to this. God tells the Israelites in verses 30 and 31, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you that you do not inquire about their gods saying, how did these nations serve their gods that I, may, that I also may do the same? You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. So there's a parallel. It, it kind of makes a sandwich you know, between the beginning of the chapter and the end of the chapter there. And this is not to say that there's not a place for 
contemporary Christian music, music uh, that, that has guitars, uh, music that is loud, music that sounds cool, music that has cool beats, uh, music that, you know, where, you know rap, um, you know, things that reflect, music styles that reflect Christian truths but sound like what you would hear you know, in any other radio station. It's not to say that there's not a place for that, but we should understand that there is a difference between Christian music, which is designed to sound like the world, and Christian worship music. And a lot of people don't understand the distinction. The stuff that you listen to on, you know, Air One or K-Love or Spirit 105 or, you know, whatever Christian radio station you might listen to, that stuff really isn't designed for worship. It's It's good music. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the music, but it's not specifically designed for worship. Most of it isn't specifically designed for worship. Music that is designed to sound like the world is designed to appeal to fallen man, and I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. Somebody's flipping through the channels on their radio. They come across a Christian song that sounds kind of cool, and they stop and listen to it. If they were flipping through channels and came to, you know, a, a pipe organ, you know, playing some hymn, you know, they're, they're going to pass right through it. So, so there, there's a totally different purpose for the music that you hear on the radio. Music that is designed to sound like the world is designed to appeal to fallen man. Our worship should be designed, first and foremost, to appeal to God. It's for God. Theologian, hymn writer, and author Douglas Bond notes this. He says, quote, When the church fashions worship to entertain the world, to give people what they want, it inevitably creates, as one journalist termed it, a Christian ghetto watering down the gospel. Moreover, when the goal is to make Christian worship appealing, we inevitably alter the message and make it less offensive and less Christian. End quote. Whenever the Israelites, looking at their history overall in the Old Testament, whenever they allowed the nations around them to influence them in a way that influenced the way that they either perceived or worshipped God, God would be offended. You know, he, he didn't like it. He would hand them over to their sin to be judged. We saw this over and over again through the book of Judges. The people... Even the leaders, maybe especially the leaders, would become worldly as they were influenced by the surrounding pagan nations, and eventually they would just stop worshiping God altogether, which would result in them becoming enslaved to the pagan nations around them. They would become idolaters. And so there is absolutely a wrong way to worship God. And we would be wise to take this to heart. We would be wise to know what God wants from us when we gather and when we worship in song together. And so Psalm 95 captures some very helpful principles, principles that I've learned, especially over the course of the last year, uh, in, in figuring out how to filter out music that doesn't worship God in accordance with his will. So we read in Psalm 95, Verses 1 and 2, we read, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. 
And here there are two principles for worship, two principles which should shape our understanding of worship and the type of worship that we bring to the Lord. The first principle that we see here is that worship should unify. Worship should unify. It's an invitation to us. It's an invitation for us to come together. It's not an invitation just to me. It's not an invitation just to the individual. The psalmist never says, hey, watch me go and sing. Watch me, you know, live for God my whole life. Watch me do this. Watch how great my faith is. He never says that. He says, oh, come, let us sing to the Lord together, together. In fact, we find the words let us three times just here in these first two verses of this psalm. So it's unmistakable. We are to do this together. We are to worship God together. Worship must unify the church, the people of God. And that brings a very important question to the surface. As we examine the lyrical content I'm not so concerned with the sound, you know, whether you're using a piano or uh, guitars or whatever. I, I don't think scripture is specific about that. Some people do, I don't. But as we examine the lyrics, that's, that's important. Lyrical content is important. Is it something that every Christian, are the lyrics reflecting something that every Christian in any place and any time can sing? It's something to think about. And this brings us to a second principle that we find here. Worship must unify, number one. And secondly, it must codify. It doesn't just say, let's sing to the Lord whatever we feel like. No, there are some very specific things that we're to sing. It must codify. That is to say, it must communicate something that is biblically true, biblically valid, and universally applicable for Christians. As I was recently considering a song that contained the lyric, I will dance, I immediately forced myself to acknowledge not only that some of us don't like to dance, and not only that you don't want to see me dance, really, but that there are people, there are Christians who literally, physically, cannot dance. There are people who can't move beyond their neck, any, any lower than their neck. There are people who can't move lower than their waist. So I got myself wondering, could, could I expect such a person to be unified with the body of Christ by singing this song? Or would it actually serve to make the amputee or the paraplegic or quadriplegic, would it serve to make them feel ostracized from the body? Can you imagine, how many of you guys know who Johnny Erickson Tata is? Almost everybody? Can you imagine how insulting it would be to somebody like her to sing a song in her presence and expect her to sing along that talks about dancing? Serious question. How about deaf, uh, deaf Christians? Now there's a, there's a question because they can't sing. Well, they can read. So the question would be, would the lyrics be worshipful to a deaf Christian? Would reflecting on the truths that are sung in a given song serve to draw that person closer to Jesus? 
And this brings a very important truth about the songs that we present as worship. They must have meaningful, worshipful lyrics. Now, if you turn on Christian radio, and I don't mean to bash Christian radio. I'm I'm really not. I'm trying to add clarity to the situation where you find a lot of churches playing all the stuff that they hear that you hear on the radio and not a lot of stuff that's that's real easy for everybody to sing. But if you turn on Christian radio, you know, you might hear a song with with a really cool beat. But that would do absolutely nothing for a deaf Christian. And if it's codifying something that's true, something that's biblically significant and if it's unifying the church, are people actually able to sing it? Um, about a month ago, I read a blog by the guy who's behind songs like All I Have is Christ, uh, um, Behold Our God, uh, Oh Great God, uh, Your Name is Matchless, a lot of the songs that we've introduced this year. This guy is very experienced in, in leading worship, uh, going back into the 70s. And one piece of advice that he had was not to include songs that jump an entire octave. That is, going from you know, just a regular D to a, a very high D, uh, vocally. It's not saying that you can't do it instrumentally, but vocally. See, the worship leader might be able to do it, and he'll probably put the, the song in a key where it's good for him to do it. He can, he's able to do it, or she's able to do it, but the chances are good that there will be some in the congregation who can't follow. Yeah, that's, that's me. I, I confess uh, it was about a month ago, and so I've, as we've been going through, you might have noticed a few weeks ago when we played This I Know, we didn't play the bridge. Why? Because very few people can actually sing it. Very few people can make the transition to that key. Now, the octave jump in worship sounds good. You know, I, I get it. It sounds good. It gives you like kind of an emotional charge. It intensifies the song, right? I get it. It increases emotion and energy, but that is not what worship is first and foremost about. Here's another question to consider while we're talking about codifying and and unifying the body. Let's say that somebody a thousand years into the future finds the lyrics to one of the songs, one of the modern songs that we sing. Would they know, would they even know that this song is about God? Would they have any idea that this song is about God? Would it communicate a biblical, doctrinally clear truth to them and doctrinally valid point to them? If you listen to a lot of the really cool stuff that gets played on Christian radio, there are a lot of songs that a teenage boy could be singing to his girlfriend, let's just be honest, or or a girl playing to her boyfriend because, you know, there's nothing that explicitly points to God. It's just a lot of yous in there. And I, I, just me personally, and, and I hope it's your conviction too, we don't want to be singing girlfriend songs to God. But one of the great traits of the hymns of the Reformation, if you read like Isaac Watts' hymns, is the fact that the lyrics alone stand as worshipful. If we didn't have any idea what it was, if we just found a piece of paper with the words to these songs, we'd see biblical truths being communicated in these lyrics. And this is why one of the first things I'll do when I'm considering a song to be introduced for worship is to ask, can any Christian in any time and any place find this song to be worshipful? Any Christian, is it universally applicable? 
Does the song bring the entire body of Christ together in communicating a clear and doctrinally valid truth about God? Another question that this passage here in Psalm 95 forces us to ask of our worship is whether or not the lyrics reflect joyful thanksgiving in our hearts. If I'm singing about how great my faith is, I would say that no, I, I'm, I'm not um, you know, reflecting a joyful thanksgiving other than for myself, toward myself. But if I'm singing about myself at all and I'm singing about what a wretch I am without God and how God in his goodness, in his mercy has saved me, not because of how great my faith is, not because my faithfulness is so great, but how great his faithfulness is, I would say that that is reflecting joyful thanksgiving. So our worship music should unify the body of believers. It should codify it. That is, it should say something true and significant about God. And that brings us to our our third point. Third, our worship should glorify the Lord. And these are in no particular order, just as they come in this psalm. So third, our worship should glorify the Lord. So the psalmist continues by telling us why we should unify and codify. Verses three to six, he says, For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. So here the psalmist suddenly starts writing about the greatness, the glory of God. He's giving us a picture of what our worship should look like too. He's showing us that anything presented as worship must glorify God, must glorify the Lord. That is, it should be centered, directed, focused on him and not on us. We aren't worshiping if we aren't declaring his worth-ship. That's where the word worship comes from, worth-ship. And that's what worship is, declaring what he is worth, declaring his glory, declaring his greatness. And if you look at the majority of music that you hear on Christian radio these days, it's very anthropocentric is the term, which just means, it's a fancy way of saying man-centered, kind of like anthropology, study of man, anthropocentric, man-centered. And the easiest way to identify this in a song is to break down the lyrics and ask, okay, who is the subject here? Is it man or is it God? Who is the hero in this song? A song that's presented as worship must have God as the pinnacle, must have God at the center. It must be Christocentric, Christ-centered, as the New Testament reveals that the only way to truly worship God is through Christ, is through the Son. And that's not to say that we can't sing about ourselves at all, but whatever we say about ourselves should explicitly reflect the truth about ourselves and that, how that compares to God. Again, am I singing, how great is my faith or how great is our God? Consider the lyrics to one of the songs that we've introduced this year here at New Beginnings Church, All I Have is Christ. 
One of my favorites, not just because there's, you know, because it sounds cool and it has a nice buildup, but because the truths reflected in the lyrics are amazing and accurate. The song starts off by singing about ourselves, but it's communicating biblically valid truths. Because I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy in life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. I could point you to the very verses that are reflected in this song, in this verse. So is this saying about how great my faith is? (laughs) Hardly. No, it's not. Or is it pointing at how great my God is? See, these are all biblically valid truths that we're singing about in that song, for example. And these truths point to how great he is and thus serve to glorify God. It's not glorifying ourselves in any way. Could every Christian in any place, in any time, sing those lyrics of themselves? Absolutely. If they understand what Scripture says about their relationship to God, absolutely. Now, will you ever hear that song on Christian radio? I don't know. I, I, I kind of doubt it, but probably not. Worship music must unify. It must codify. And it must glorify. It must be God-centered. It must say something meaningful and biblically valid about him, and it must exalt him. And that's important because this principle will prevent us from offering up songs that might stir us up emotionally, not because it reminds us of how great God is or how great our need for him is or things that he has done. Worship isn't about how a song makes us feel as much as it's something that instills in us the reality about God as revealed in Scripture. That's not to say that emotion is a bad thing in worship music. See, let's say that you've got a spectrum here where, okay, you've got dry doctrinal music and you've got really exciting, really emotionally charged music that doesn't have a lot to do with God. But it gets you emotionally charged up. Where do you want to fall between those two? You want to fall right in the middle. You want to fall right in the middle. Emotionally heavy, doctrinally empty worship is just as dangerous as emotionally empty, doctrinally heavy worship. Balance is the key here. Worship should grip the entire person, their intellect and their will, their heart and their mind. But it has to do it for the right reason, and that is that God alone is worthy of our worship and our praise. One pastor puts it this way. He says, quote, We need to make sure our music is Christocentric, a word that you just heard me use, not man-centered. Instead of singing about how happy we are to be gathered together worshiping God, the Psalms call us to sing directly to God. In other words, we are to not just talk about how we feel when we worship, but rather engage our body, soul, and spirit, complete with our emotions, in a total preoccupation with the rock of our salvation. End quote. So the first principle is that our music must unify the body. The second principle is that it codifies a doctrine, it communicates a doctrine, at least one. 
Third, it glorifies God. The fourth and final principle is that our worship music must edify. Unify, codify, glorify, edify. The psalmist continues by writing this. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture. Again, singing about ourselves, but something about our relation to God. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah, Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. Now, you probably notice there's something of a transition going on here. In the first seven verses, the psalmist himself was the one who was speaking to us, right? Uh, The author goes from speaking about the greatness of God in verse 7 to issuing a very serious warning to those who would take worshiping God lightly, who would be maybe doing it on the surface but not doing anything inside. So for the first seven verses, the psalmist was speaking, but in verses 8 and onward, it's God himself speaking and issuing the worshiper a warning. A warning against what? Against having a hardened heart. God says, don't harden your hearts as you did at Meribah. And if you were to do a search to figure out where Meribah and Massah are or what happened there, the first time that we see those words is in Exodus chapter 17, verse 7, where we read, And he, uh, he, Moses, called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So the context of that passage is that the Israelites had been wandering out in the wilderness and they found themselves with nothing to drink. They're thirsty. And so who do they start getting mad at? The person that they were counting on, Moses. Not God, Moses. Asking why he had brought them out there to die of thirst. In other words, they they weren't trusting in God to sustain them, even though they had seen the great works of God. They had seen how he delivered them from the Egyptians. Yet they're still trusting in man, trusting in Moses. So Moses cries out to the Lord, what am I going to do with these guys, basically? And the Lord instructs Moses, strike the rock in order that water may flow from it and people can have something to drink. And of course, this was a foreshadowing of Christ, we learn in the New Testament. But this is the hard-heartedness that was associated with Meribah and Massah. And so with that in mind, let's finish this psalm. God continues as the one who's addressing the reader here by saying this in verses 10 and 11. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart. And they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. The point that we're drawn to is the importance of trusting in the Lord above anything else. The first principle of worship, unify. Second, codify. Third, glorify. Fourth, edify. 
That is, it should encourage us to soften our hearts towards the Lord, to open our hearts to the Lord, to turn our hearts fully to the Lord. It should encourage a proper response from us. It should encourage us to find our strength in the Lord, to seek Him more diligently, to make sure that we're not becoming hard-hearted toward Him, but that we're continuing to trust in Him and Him alone and that we are yielding to his supreme authority in our lives. He says there are people who go astray in their heart. On the surface, they're following. Externally, they're following Moses. They're following the person that God had put in charge of them. And Moses was going where God wanted him to go. And the people in their hearts were only following Moses. And that's what it means to be hard-hearted toward God. Surface only. Heart astray. Worship should remind us to examine ourselves in order to ensure that we're not just worshiping on the surface. We're not just singing the songs, going through the motions externally, but that there is something going on in our hearts. There's something going on internally as well. When we worship, God desires that we turn our hearts fully to Him. As we gather to sing, it's not a time for us to be thinking, oh, Seahawks kick off in an hour and 40 minutes from right now. It's not a time to be thinking, oh, I wonder if I get to work early tomorrow, if I could get done by 3 o'clock and get out of there. It's not a time to be thinking, oh man, I'm going to see Star Wars today, tonight, I can't wait. Or, man, that TV show last night was, was really interesting. That was a strange twist. It's not a time to be doing these types of things. Those are the very types of things that God is specifically warning us about right here. I'd say that there's also a lot of danger in seeing our worship as a performance One of the quickest and easiest ways to become hard-hearted in our worship is to see it as a performance before man. We're not seeing it for one another, first and foremost, anyway. We sing together and we try to keep each other on key, right? But first and foremost, it's for God. So what if we're not singing on key? Do you really think that God cares if we sing on key? No. He doesn't. He's looking at what's going on in our hearts. And if we can't sing for whatever reason, let's say you've got a sore throat, or maybe you just don't know the song, are you reflecting on the truths of the lyrics? Part of our worship must be examining our own hearts before the Lord. We must learn We must learn to spend time reflecting on the truths being expressed in the songs of our worship because God is clearly telling us here that listening or reading and reflecting and responding is part of worship. Read, reflect, respond, repeat. Read, reflect, respond, repeat. In this way, we're edified. 
our walk with the Lord is strengthened individually and corporately. In the preface to the Genevan Psalter of 1545, that's like a fancy name for a a hymnal, John Calvin had this to say about the power and the influence of music. He said, quote, there is hardly anything in the world with more power to turn the morals of men, end quote. Or as the Scottish politician Andrew Fletcher once said, Doug, we we talked about this one night in small group. He said, let me make the songs of a nation and I care not who makes its laws. End quote. Is music that powerful? It is. It is. If you want to memorize something, the best way to do it is actually to sing a song about it. Now, what do you think God might have had in mind? What do you think he might have been trying to tell us when he made the longest book in the Bible a book of songs? We're created to worship. We're created to sing unto the Lord, but part of that design is that we internalize what it is that we're singing, whether we, whether, you know, we mean it to or not, whether we mean to or not, we do internalize the things that we sing. What's the most successful way to, to memorize the alphabet for a kid? To learn it by song. What's the most successful way for us to learn and memorize doctrine? As well as how to articulate it verbally. Singing it. Singing it is. And so with that said, we must be very careful about what we sing. Very careful about what we sing. And we must be certain that what we do sing, what we present as worship, is acceptable to God. It unifies, it codifies, it glorifies, it edifies. Does it unify the church? Does it codify a truth? Does it glorify God? Does it edify us individually and corporately in our walk with Christ? When our songs do this, and when our response is for our hearts to respond not by hardening, but by turning more fully to God, surrendering more fully to him, there is something that we can be very, very sure of. And that is that our worship is pleasing to him. So I want to close with a quote from Burke Parsons. Anybody know who Burke Parsons is? Well, right now he's the managing editor for Table Talk Magazine, which is the monthly magazine for uh, Ligonier Ministries, R.C. Sproul's ministry. Uh, But he was actually a founding member of the Backstreet Boys. If you can believe that, how weird is that? Yeah. He says, he writes this, he says, quote, the world of show business, and he would know, really, the world of show business is the world of man-centered entertainment. The foundational philosophy of man-centered entertainment is to do whatever it takes in order to attract millions of fans and to make millions of dollars. And he goes on to say, this has become the philosophy of many evangelicals who have exchanged God-centered worship for man-centered entertainment that is founded upon the ever-changing principles of the culture rather than upon the unchanging principles of the word of God. End quote. We must bring our worship under the authority and the counsel of God if it is to be sung for the glory of God. Knowing that the word of God, the Bible, transcends every cultural fad or trend. The word of God lasts forever. 
Cultural fads and trends, by definition, come and go. And I praise the Lord for the worship that we're developing here, that we, that we have here. It is amazing to me. It is a blessing to me to see what the Lord is bringing together here. And with a clear and biblical understanding of worship in place, my prayer is that through our songs and through biblical, lyrical content for our worship, we may all be drawn deeper and closer in our walk with Christ. In the coming year and in the years to come, through our songs, may we continue to grow in our understanding of our desperate need for him and of his greatness. And may we glorify him as we continue in our journey of learning to bring every single aspect of our lives, individually and together, under his authority, according to his counsel, for the sake of knowing Christ and making him known. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again, for your word. And Lord, we desire to do what is good and pleasing to you. And we thank you that your word tells us how to do that and how not to do that. So our prayer, Lord, is that not only our lives would reflect your glory and our lives would be lived in accordance with with your will, but that our songs would be too. We pray, Lord, that as we sing, our hearts might be open to you, turned to you, freely yielding to you. As we seek to glorify you, as we seek to unify as a body, as we seek to communicate important truths from your word and to be strengthened by them in order that we may know you more deeply in order that we may glorify you. Christ's name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org. And you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.